Welcome to Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on whatever topic the guys choose. Their goal is to entertain and inform you on a variety of themes. This podcast is an expression of their lifelong love and commitment to music. Simply stated, music is life. This show may include adult themes and language. Once again, welcome to Musically Challenged. Here are your hosts, Chad and Lou. Welcome to episode 64 of Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of music, trivia, and pretty much whatever the hell we want to talk about. I'm your host, Chad Knight, and with me as always is Lou Schwalbach. Good evening, folks. So this is our second special in three weeks. That's right, Lou and I are both April babies, and since I leveled up a few weeks ago, it's Lou's turn. Born in 1977, let's see what life looked like back then. President was James Earl Carter Jr. Vice President was Walter F. Mondale. U.S. population was 222 million. Life expectancy was 73.3 years. Inflation was 11%. Unemployment, 7.7%. How much do you think a new house costs then? Oh, God. Um, Let's say... Are we doing like prices right? You you have overbid. No, no. Um, I'm just just curious. I'm going to guess uh, somewhere between 38 and 40. $54,200 was the average new home. Oh, so I've been thinking about a shitty house. <laughs> Median household income, $13,572. Oh, good Lord. That's poverty now, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Easy. Cost of first class stamp, $0.13. Cents. Cost of a gallon of regular gas, $0.62. Cents. You don't get regular gas anymore, people. Some places you can find it. It's hard to, though, like Sinclair stations. Really? They still do? Is you sure it's not regular unleaded? No, I think it's just regular, period. Because a lot of times, if you still have a car that runs on regular, you have to buy an additive to put into unleaded gas. Right. Cost of a dozen eggs, 82 cents. Cost of a gallon of milk was $1.68. So Lou is a great guy. That said, I would never call Lou to bail me out of jail. Because he'd be right next to me, saying, I would never have thought we'd end up here, but whose wife are we calling? Then we'd both pause, turn to each other, and say, Scott. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, you know, and that would be one of the... We'd probably end up drawing straws to see who's going to get their ass whooped this time first. Yeah, exactly. So... Lou is one of my best friends, and a rest of my life friend. Enough with the sappy stuff. Grab your bell-bottoms and your Yoo-Hoo chocolate drink, and let's get the show started. Oh, dude, Yoo-Hoo's fucking delicious. I know it is! It's, I mean, Sheldon likes it, if you ever, I don't know if you watched the Young Sheldon show. No, I have not. Or actually, I think adult Sheldon watches it, does it too. I think he does on occasion. It's weird as hell, because it's like not chocolate, it's like chocolate water almost. It is almost, yeah. But, but it's, it's tasty. Still, it's still very good. All right, so how you been, man? Pretty good, pretty good. Um, you're leveling up. You're still around, so that's always good. Yeah, Nothing's yeah. falling off and yet. And you run a you run a level behind me, so you get to see what falls off first. Oh, that's just nothing to look forward to. <laughs> All right, man. So few days yet before you actually level up, though. Approximately, yes. Approximately a few days. Yes, exactly. Okay, perfect. So why don't we just get right into the beer? I'm thinking that's what we should do. I would agree. All right, so I went out, and I was at Quick Trip, and I decided that I wanted to look for something a little different. Uh, what do they call them, a bro beer? Is that what this is yeah, called? Yeah, this is a bro beer. So I got Four Loco, which is a premium malt beverage with natural and artificial flavors and certified colors. That's important. Jesus. It's 12% by volume. Uh, a serving size is five fluid ounces. This can is... What, 24? 
I don't know, a lot. It says there's almost five servings per can. So <laughs> Four and three-quarter servings, so 4.7. Yeah, 23.5 23. fluid ounces. Oh, well, those bastards couldn't even make any dinner in 24? Well, they were too drunk. Uh, I suppose that's 12%. I mean, it's 12%. 12%. So I got the local black cherry flavor. Now, I've never had a four loco. I've heard about them in the past. You said you've never had a four loco. No, no. It's even spelled L-O-K-O. Yes. Now, I got these on sale, which makes it even more fun. Okay. Take a guess what I paid per can, and I bought two of them. Well, let's see here. Per can, let's go, let's see, alcoholic beverages, two cans, even the shittiest beer out there. I'm going to say maybe a buck and a half each. A dollar twenty-nine. Damn. <laughs> so should we pop these open and Absolutely. see what happens? All right, here we go, man. All right. Um... It's cherry. It's definitely cherry. Kind of goes away quick. It goes away quick, but man, it burns going down. That's a bit bitter. It's a bit bitter, and it burns going down. I didn't get the burning, but I love the fact the can says we ID. <laughs> Which they didn't. Do you look that old, maybe? <laughs> Shut up! So, all right, let's do the rating. Thumbs up, thumbs down, or bar? I'm going to say bar. Yeah, I'm going to go with a bar as well. If, I mean, this is cold, it's good. Um, I don't know how... In the middle of summer? Around a fire? Around a fire and you really want to get fucked up? Oh, yeah. If you don't have anywhere to be. Yes. Because I For have a like feeling, a week, I got a feeling. I have a feeling a couple of these, between the sugar shock and the alcohol, would probably mess you up pretty hard. Yeah, I'm thinking this so. This is... Drink 4 is out of La Crosse and Memphis, Tennessee. Well, there you go. With a special agreement with Latrobe, Pennsylvania. So they have to put them damn Quakers in there for some reason. <laughs> Well, Quakers like alcohol, too. Yeah, but don't they brew their own or something? Well, they might. I don't know. They build a barn and churn their butter and brew their own. Yeah, they churn their butter. Is that what they call it? <laughs> well, it depends if the women are putting out or not. <laughs> All right, so something a little different. Now, you're going to ask me a trivia question in a second here, but I'm going to start out by asking you a trivia question. All right. So right now, Lou stands at zero and zero. Okay. We'll have to keep track of this because once a year, at least, I'm going to ask you a question. And who knows? Maybe we could actually do, we'll just do back for each other. That might be. Yeah. All right, so here's the question. Um, it's on the other page. <laughs> you, you've only just been drinking, seriously. Well, I started earlier. I had free beer at my wife's. Oh, uh, okay. But anyway, name the band from a major recording label that has had the same original lineup of members for over 40 years. Oh, and I know we talked about this. I think I, I'm, I'm going to write this down, but I'm pretty We'll do it at the end. I know, but I'm going to write it down because I think I know who this is. All right. I'm going to read it one more time for the people out there, and then we'll move on. So name the band from a major recording label that has had the same original lineup of members for over 40 years. Okay. All right. So why don't so, you go ahead and ask me mine? All right. So I know even though this is my episode and Chad's leading the show, I'm still going to ask him a question. But it's going to be off the record. So if he gets it wrong, we're not going to count it. If he gets it right, hey, it's bonus. So there's really a no-lose situation. Yeah, I do not lose on any part of this. <laughs> exactly. So here is my question. And what is my favorite movie of all time? Now, you may ask, how is this music related? Well, the movie's soundtrack fe features an exclusive Journey song called Only Solutions. And the score was orchestrated by Wendy Carlos, who also did the soundtrack for A Clockwork Orange and The Shining. If you need another hint, they made a sequel, and the sequel was done by Daft Punk. Okay. Well, at least it's not going to count against me. <laughs> you know, honestly, if you think about it, I know I've talked about it. You probably will get it. I will I will think about it. I do not have anything right now, but 
So now, since this is basically a listener list, I am going to use the uh, the rating system. Okay. And we're not going to use it like uh, like we normally do. We're not going to, at the end, talk about where we came in together and stuff like that. I, I know you've probably written down your, your ratings as well. But yep. So here's a recap of the way we do this. Zero is absolute shit. Kill it with fire before your ears bleed. I can proudly say there are no zeros. I... Don't think I picked any zeros for myself either. So, one to three is a hard pass. Never again. Four to six is okay. Not great, but not terrible. It's not something we're going to change the radio station on. But, in the same breath, we're not going to go looking for it either. Seven to nine is pretty good to great. May have to look for more by the Asardis in the future. And ten is the unicorn. And I can honestly say there are no tens in here either. And I didn't pick any tens. In fact, I'm just going to preface this, that this whole list of songs with a disclaimer, that these are not all hits and they are not all great songs. So I'm not going to be giving them nines and tens because that's just bullshit. Well, I mean, even when we did mine, I think I had as low as a five. Right. Now, I like them for some reason or another. Oftentimes they just either strike a chord with me or invoke some form of fond memory, which is what we're going to end up talking about. You may end up learning more about me today than you really wanted to know but, and you'll get into my mind more than you wanted to, so... You already did it for me, so fair enough. Exactly so. All right, so let's get this thing started. So I'm going to start off with Ooby Dooby by Roy Orbison. So in 1954, Dick Penner had enrolled at the University of North Texas, where he met Wade Moore. They composed Ooby Dooby in February 1955. Penner and Wade had taken a six-pack of beer onto the flat roof of their Lambda Chai fraternity house and wrote Ooby Dooby in a matter of minutes. Roy Orbison, then a student at North Texas and friend, became aware of the song and, sometime late in 1955, recorded a demo of it with his band, The Wink Westerners, at the Jim Beck Studio in Dallas, and sent it to Columbia Records. Columbia was not interested in Orbison. A second recording of Ooby Dooby by Orbison took place at the Norman Petty Studios in Clovis, New Mexico, and according to the official U.S. Roy Orbison disc by Marcel Reisko. The recording was released on J. J. Well 101 in March 1956. On March 20, 1956, a Roy Orbison session was set at Sam Phillips Sun Studio and Ooby Dooby was released yet again on Sun 242. By June 1956, the single had climbed to 59 on Billboard's Hot 100 and soon thereafter sold over 250,000 copies. The song has since been covered by several other artists, including Creedence Clearwater Revival, and was featured in the movie Star Trek First Contact as the favorite song on the jukebox of Zephram Cochran, played by... Jamie Cromwell. Yep. But played by Cochran while meeting with the Vulcans who landed on Earth after detecting his first warp flight. The song is the first element of human culture shared with an alien race. Let's see what it's all about. Dude, can you imagine the Vulcans being as kind of tight-ass as they are hearing that song? If you remember the movie, they're kind of like, um, okay. I think we're on the wrong planet. So Roy Kelton Orbison was an American singer-songwriter known for his distinctive, impassioned voice complex song structures, and dark emotional ballads. While most male rock and roll performers in the 1950s and 1960s projected a defiant masculinity, many of Orbison's songs instead conveyed vulnerability. His voice ranged from baritone to tenor, and music scholars have suggested that he had a three or four octave range. 
So that's pretty that's pretty damn big. Oh yeah, I mean hell, that's that's I mean two is big for a guy. I right. Mean, I mean it's not Prince range, but it's still I mean four octaves is huge. So born in Texas, Orbison began singing in a rockabilly and country and western band in high school. He was signed by Sam Phillips of Sun Records in 1956, but his greatest success came with Monument Records. From 1960 to 66, 22 of his singles reached the Billboard Top 40, and he wrote or co-wrote almost all that rose to the top 10. Soon afterward, Orbison was struck by a number of personal tragedies while his record sales declined. In the 1980s, he experienced a resurgence of popularity through a success of several cover versions of his songs. And, in 1988, co-founded the Traveling Wilburys, a rock supergroup. He died of a heart attack later that year at the age of 52. His honors include inductions into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1987, the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in the same year, and the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1989. Rolling Stone placed him at number 37 on their list of the greatest artists of all time, and number 13 on their list of the 100 greatest singers of all time. In 2002, Billboard magazine listed Orbison at number 74 in the top 600 recording artists. The song Ooby Dooby itself seems to be a song about a dance where you could shake your Ooby Dooby all over. It's a fun little 50s era song. The guitars are strong, and I love the classic sound of the guitars of that era. Not an overly complex song, but I enjoyed it, and I gave it a 6. All right. I've liked Orbison for his musical style for a long time, and you mentioned Star Trek. That's actually where I fell in love with this song. First Contact, in my opinion, is the best of the original of the Next Generation crew movies, even though it was the first one that um, they put out. If you don't, well, if you don't count Generations, because that was kind of a passing of the torch. Yep. But the first one, I think Jonathan Frakes, uh, Riker, he directed it, and I loved it with the Borg and the battles and everything else. It was great. The first two or three of the Generations movies, I really enjoyed. Then they got a little weird. Because I think, what was there, three of them, I think? Because there was First Contact, Nemesis, and I can't remember what the other one was. Yeah, there was another one, and and Nemesis was really weird. Yeah, that one was, well, we won't get into that one, but no, First Contact, really enjoyed it. Um, Having this on the jukebox, it's a classic Roy song, I could listen to it, I gave it a seven. Okay, fair enough, let's move on. Alright, what do you got next? So I got Send Me an Angel by Real Life. Send Me an Angel is a 1983 song by Australian band Real Life. Initially released on Real Life's debut album, Heartland, it is the biggest, or it is the band's best-known song. This vision originally peaked in early 1984 in the U.S. at number 29 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. The song's biggest chart success, however, came in 1989, when an updated version entitled Send Me an Angel, 89, surpassed the original version from 1983. Very clever. I know, they're, they're really good with naming. Send Me an Angel 89 reached the peak of number 26 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in the summer of 1989 in the U.S. The song appears on the non-stop pop in-game radio station in the PC, Xbox One, PS4 versions of the 2013 video game Grand Theft Auto V. What number are they on now? Five. That's the most recent one. So 2013's is the most recent? Okay. Yes. Let's see if someone will send us an angel. It's hard to be lucky are a Melbourne-based Australian new wave synth-pop band that achieved international <laughs> success 
with their 1983 singles Send Me an Angel and Catch Me I'm Falling. Both singles appeared on the band's debut album, Heartland, released in 1983. The group's debut single, Send Me an Angel, became a top 10 hit in Australia and topped the charts in New Zealand and Germany. It also entered the top 30 in the U.S. Real Life released their second and final album with the original lineup in 1985 titled Flame, and they went down in it. In 1986, they recorded the controversial song Babies for, the new, for a new North American album, Down Comes the Hammer, but this also failed to chart. There were two other new songs and a remix of Send Me an Angel on the album. This was to be the first of three compilation albums after the band had only recorded two studio LPs. The movie Rad featured Send Me an Angel on its soundtrack, as one notable scene from the film featured riders on BMX cross-country bikes performing various freestyle stunts as the song played. In 1989, Real Life released a new version of Send Me an Angel titled Send Me an Angel 89. In 1990, the group released Lifetime, their first album of all new material in five years, which spawned minor hits with God Tonight and Kiss the Ground. In 1998, the band released the album Happy, which followed in 2004 by Imperfection. In 2006, a new album of new mixes, Send Me an Angel, was released, bringing the total number of versions of the song to approximately 18. <laughs> in spring 2008, real life, uh, David Sterry, who was all that was left at this time, performed live for the first time in the Philippines along with When in Rome and A Flock of Seagulls as part of the Lost 80s Live Tour in Manila. Yeah, that, Yeah, that those is. bands, that, that makes it. Send Me an Angel is often mistakenly referred to as a Pet Shop Boy song due to its being mislabeled on a widely downloaded MP3 during the early days of Napster. Many online lyrics websites therefore erroneously credited Send Me an Angel to the Pet Shop Boys, when it is, of course, by real life. On May 19, 2009, Real Life released an album of their cover versions of 1980s classics, including a new 2009 version of Send Me an Angel. Good Lord. Called Send Me an Angel 80s Synth Essentials on Cleopatra Records in the U.S. Well, they're definitely beating the hell out of that song, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. As for the song itself, I remember growing up listening to this type of music. Bands such as Devo and Men Without Hats were staples in America, American Top 40 stations. And before I found... That better music was on the oldie station. I'd listen to this kind of music as well. It just kind of middle of the road for me. I gave it a five. All right. Now, this wasn't the Scorpion song, because I know whenever you put Send Me an Angel, the first thing that anything comes up with is Scorpion. That was what was in my head. Which is why I made sure to tell you who the artist was. That's probably a good thing. Or we'd be talking about the Scorpions. Right, right. Now, this was one of their hits. As you mentioned, they had a second one that Catch Me on Falling, but honestly, I could not pick that one out if I would have tried. So they're not technically a one-hit wonder, but for me they are. Yeah, I, one, I can see that. A one-hit wonder that they made 95 versions of. <laughs> well, 19 or 20, depending on who you talk to, I suppose. Now, I remember hearing this on the radio also, uh, WIFC, local station, yep, yep. Acid IFC, they used to call it, I guess. They played it all the time, That's kind of, and then when they got into Top 40, they, they passed up on it. Now, you mentioned the Grand Theft Auto, which that was actually one of my notes here also. But I also remember, do you remember the movie The Wizard? No. With Fred Savage, where they played in the video game concert, concert with Super Mario 3 or whatever else. No. They had that movie as they're driving along to the video game conference or uh, competition in Las Vegas or whatever. And that's oh, okay. where I mainly remember this. Okay. I saw that movie at Rogers for a buck. It was a two-feature with that and Dumb and Dumber, I think. Okay. Tells you how long ago that was. So For a buck? Yeah. I give it a six. Again, not a great song, but it's it's got memory for me. Right. Absolutely. Up next, we have Safety Dance from Men Without Hats. The Safety Dance is a song by Canadian new wave synth-pop band Men Without Hats. I have to be honest, I thought Men Without Hats 
was an Australian band. Kind of by the accent, I thought as well. In fact, when you mentioned Canadians, I'm like, really? How did that not make our Canada show? Right. So released in Canada in 1983 as a second single from Rhythm of Youth. The song was written by lead singer Ivan Dorshuk after he had been kicked out of a club for pogo dancing. The song entered the Canadian Top 50 in February 1983, peaking at number 11 on May 14th. In the meantime, the Safety Dance was released in the U.S. on March 16th, but did not enter the U.S. charts for a few months. When it finally did, the record became a bigger hit than it had been in Canada, spending four weeks at its peak position of number three in September and October of 1983, and staying on the Billboard Hot 100 for 24 weeks. Charted for half a year, that's not bad. No, not for for this song, yeah. It also reached number one on Cashbox, as well as number one on the Billboard Dance Chart. Fuck is Cashbox? Two charts no one cares about. Okay, thank you. <laughs> the writer, lead singer Ivan Doshek, has explained that Safety Dance is a protest against bouncers stopping dancers pogoing to 1980s new wave music in clubs when disco was dying and new wave was up and coming. So I had to look and see what pogoing was. I mean, I in my mind, I kind of had an idea, and I was pretty darn close, but the pogo is a dance which the dancers jump up and down while either remaining on a spot or moving around. The dance takes its name from its resemblance to the use of a pogo stick, especially in a common version of the dance where an individual keeps their torso stiff, their arms rigid, and their legs close together. Pogo dancing is most associated with punk rock and is a precursor to moshing. Kind of sounds like the jump around. Yeah, kind of. Except the jump around, people actually move more than just up and down. They kind of flail their bodies a little bit. So new wave dancing, especially pogoing, was a different from disco dancing because it was done individually instead of with a partner. To uninformed bystanders, this could look dangerous, especially if pogoers accidentally bounce into one another. The more deliberately violent evolution of pogoing is slam dancing. Yep. The bouncers did not like pogoing, so they would tell pogoers to stop or to be kicked out of the club. Thus, the song is a protest and a call for freedom of expression. In 2003, in an episode of VH1's True Spin, Dorshek responded to two common interpretations of the song. Firstly, he explained the safety dance is not a call for safe sex, and that this interpretation is people reading into a bit people reading into it a bit too much. Secondly, he explained that it is not an anti-nuclear protest song per se, despite the nuclear imagery at the end of the video. Dorshik stated that it, it wasn't a question of just being anti-nuclear, it was a question of being anti-establishment. Let's dance and be safe about it, will ya? We can dance if we want to, we can leave your pants behind. Cause your friends don't dance, and if they don't dance, well that no pants of mine. Say, we can go where we want to, they so they will never find. And we can act like we come from out of this world, leave the real one far behind. So Men Without Hats are a Canadian new wave synth pop group, originally from Montreal, Quebec. Their music is characterized by the distinctive baritone voice of their American-born Canadian lead singer Ivan Doroshek, as well as their elaborate use of the synthesizers and electronic processing. They achieved their greatest popularity in the 1980s with The Safety Dance, a worldwide top 10 hit, and Pop Goes the World. After a hiatus for most of the 1990s and 2000s, Doroshuk reformed the band in 2010 and released Love in the Age of War in 2012. The reformed group, based in Vancouver, has continued to perform, including a European tour in 2015 and Australia in 2016. They're still active? Yeah. Oh, wow. Men Without Hats was founded in Montreal in 1977 as a punk rock band featuring Ivan Dorshuk vocals, Pete Seabrook on guitar, Dave Hill on bass, and John Gurren on drums. 
Ivan had previously sung in a band called Wave 21 with uh, Jeremy Erobas, uh, Stefan Dorschuk on bass, and Colin Dorschuk on guitar. In 1979, Wave 21 renamed themselves into Men Without Hats after the punk band. The Dorschuk brothers, all three of whom are classically trained musicians, were born in Champaign, Illinois, while their father, a Canadian, was earning a doctoral degree. They moved to Montreal as young children when their parents returned to Canada. The group's name came about because the brothers, following a self-described principle of style before comfort, refused to wear hats during Montreal's cold winters, calling themselves the Men Without Hats. Now, the song. Safety Dance is, as far as I'm concerned, the best synth-pop song out there. I mean, there are good ones out there, other ones out there as well. Devo and with Whip It, and you know that one comes instantly to my brain. Mm-hmm. This is better. I gave this an eight. Oh wow, that's. I wish I could say this is an amazing song, and that's why I like it. But it truly is not. It it really is not. What it is, however, is a great representation of the generation. This is so 80s that it almost hurts. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- it's it's been used in so many forms of different media. It's ridiculous. The one that comes to mind for me is I don't know if you ever watched Scrubs. Oh yeah. Do you remember um, Donald Faison, Turk? He was talking to his girlfriend about his kid playing football and dancing, and they kind of went into the lyrics back and forth. It just worked so yeah. perfectly. Oh, yeah. It's an earworm for me. It's guilty, and it makes me want to go to a Ren Fair. You ever see the video for it? No. They are at a Ren Fair with midgets. I shit you not. Look it up. I'm going to have to look that up because midgets are awesome. <laughs> um, it's a six for me. Okay. I, I appreciate the, the high comment, but I can't say it's that great. <laughs> I just really enjoy it. So up next we have Fly Away by Lenny Kravitz. Fly Away is a song by American singer Lenny Kravitz. It was released as a fourth single from his fifth studio album, Five, in 1998. Yeah, his fifth studio album was called Five. You know, Chicago did that, though. Yeah, but Chicago did it all the way through. All his other... Uh, most of the way through. Most of the way through. But he's just got one. His fifth album is five. The rest of them he's have, He's too like... busy to count, dude. Seriously. <laughs> At least he didn't put it self-titled. Self-titled number one. Self-titled number two. Yeah. Lenny Five. The lyrics are, are very simple, which makes the song great for sports montages and movie scenes where there is no deep meaning trying to be conveyed. Kravitz feels good songwriting can be done with very basic ideas. The song was done very quickly. After the album was already finished... Kravitz originally intended it to be a B-side only, but a friend who heard that song finally convinced him to call his record company, stopped the whole procedure, and added the song to the album. Wow. This won a Grammy in 1998 for Best Male Pop or Best Male Rock Vocal Performance. Kravitz won the same award the next two years for American Woman and again. Kravitz told Guitar World Magazine that sometimes the sound of the guitar or amp you pick up makes you play a certain type of riff. And when he picked up the guitar that time... The sound made him play the riff for this song. Let's go ahead and fly away. I fly above the trees, over the seas, and all the grease to anywhere I please. Oh, I want to get away. I fly away. Yeah, yeah. So Leonard Albert Kravitz is an American singer, songwriter, actor, and record producer. His retro style incorporates elements of rock, blues, soul, R&B, funk, jazz, reggae, hard rock, psychedelia, pop, folk, and ballads. And I was, as I was writing this out, I'm like, I'm going through my head, I'm like, okay, yeah. I didn't hear country. That's about the only thing I didn't hear. Yeah, about. exactly. In addition to singing lead and backing vocals, Kravitz often plays all the instruments himself when recording. 
He won the Grammy Award for Best Male Rock Vocal Performance four years in a row from 1999 to 2002, breaking the record for most wins in that category as well as setting the record for most consecutive wins in one category by a male. He has been nominated for and won other awards, including the American Music Awards, MTV Video Music Awards, Radio Music Awards, Brit Awards, and Blockbuster Entertainment Awards. He was also ranked number 93 on VH1's 100 Greatest Artists of Hard Rock. That seems kind of low to me, but... On December 1st, 2011, Kravitz made an, was made an Officer of the Order des Arts et des Letters, so Order of Arts and Letters uh, in France. He played Cinna in the Hunger Games film series. To date, Lenny Kravitz has released 10 studio albums, and the latest was 2014's Strut. But fear not, as Lenny has a new album slated to release in 2018 called Ray's Vibration. So the song Fly Away, I think, is actually an amazing song. I think this is the first time Mr. Kravitz has graced our show, and I'm puzzled as to how. Probably because I hate that cover of American Woman. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So Fly Away is a full energy song and isn't deep in concept, but very rich in music. I hope I look half as good as he does when I'm 53. Oh, no shit. I mean, I really like this song, and I gave it a solid 7. Have you seen the video for this? Yes. It is a spaz fest. It is, it really is. I mean, seriously, this is like an epileptic seizure waiting to happen. (laughs) Um, You know, back when I would listen to the radio, the song came on here and there. It wasn't poppy and definitely wasn't boy bandy, which is why it didn't get overplayed on the Top 40 station, which I think that's probably the reason why I like it is because it didn't get overplayed to death. For some reason, I just gravitated for this song. I loved this song from the beginning and sought it out. It's got great instrumentals, great vocals. I got my copy of the song on one of those Now That's What I Call Music CDs. Okay. I think it was the first one. They're up to 65 now. And that's not even counting Now That's What I Call Christmas. Now That's What I Call Halloween or whatever else. Well, I can't think it would be the first one because they can't be at 65 since 1998. They put out multiple a year. Well, I know, but... Google it, dude. Seriously. I think it was either... it's Because I own number one through four and then said, fuck it, I'm done with these. And good thing I did because otherwise... You'd be broke. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I gave it an eight. I really enjoy this song. Okay. Fair enough. So up next, we got Let There Be Rock by ACDC. Let There Be Rock is a song by Australian hard rock band ACDC. It is the third and title track from their album, Let There Be Rock. Released in March 1977 and was written by Angus Young, Malcolm Young, and Bon Scott. It was also released as a single with B-side of Problem Child in 1977. The song provides an encapsulated fictionalized version of the history of rock and roll, building on a line from the Chuck Berry song, Roll Over Beethoven, Tell Tchaikovsky the News. Let There Be Rock reveals that Tchaikovsky did in fact receive the message and subsequently shared it with the masses, resulting in the rise of rock and roll. Following rock's birth, rock bands appeared everywhere. Musicians found fame, while businesses made money off their efforts, and millions of people learned how to play electric guitar. The third and final verse speaks of a 42 decibel rock band, playing good, loud music in an establishment called The Shaking Hand. This is usually changed to 92 decibels in live versions of the song. Because the 42 is kind of paltry. Well, but in 77, it probably wasn't too far off. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it was a Deep Purple that had, like, the loudest concert ever. Yeah, but that was like... Uh, but that was a concert, not a, not a club. Right, right. I'll bet you that uh, 20 Watt was playing a little higher than 42. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Guys, I, we, we love your stuff, but you were loud. Just a tick. So, after the final verse, the song ends with an extended solo by Angus Young, which consists mainly of fast picking, string bends, and hammer-ons. So, let there be rock! 
it's unfortunate you couldn't see that image that I just saw when you said that. I have a feeling it's it's. I wish I had a picture of it that we could put when we put this episode out. Why? What? I just because that was awesome. I just did the the devil horns and and your eyes turned a little red actually. Well, that's the demon. Well, I thought that was the pot, but whatever. Nice. <laughs> ACDC are an Australian rock band formed in Sydney in 1973 by brothers Malcolm and Angus Young, a hard rock blues rock band. Their music has also been called heavy metal, although they refer to themselves as a rock and roll band. Nothing more, nothing less. ACDC underwent several lineup changes before releasing their first album, High Voltage, in 1975. Whenever I read that, I want to go, High Voltage! Yeah. So membership subsequently stabilized... Uh, until bassist Mark Evans was replaced by Cliff Williams in 1977 for the album Power Ridge. Within months of recording the album Highway to Hell, lead singer and co-songwriter Bon Scott died on 19 February 1980 after a night of heavy alcohol consumption. The group considered disbanding, but buoyed by support from Scott's parents, decided to continue and set about finding a new vocalist. Ex-Geordie singer Brian Johnson was selected to replace Scott. Later that year, the band released a new album, Back in Black, uh, which was made as a tribute to Bon Scott. The album launched them to new heights of success and became their all-time bestseller. The band's next album, For Those About to Rock, We Salute You, was their first album to reach number one in the United States. Drummer Phil Rudd was fired in 1983 and replaced by XA2Z drummer Simon Wright, who left to join Dio in 1989. The band experienced a resurgence in the early 1990s with the release of The Razor's Edge. Which is an amazing album. Oh, hells yeah. That was one of the first like full albums I listened to. Yeah, me too. Me too. So Phil Rudd returned in 1994 uh, after Chris Slade, who was with the band from 1989 to 1994, was asked to leave in favor of him and contributed to the band's 1995 album, Ball Breaker. Stiff Upper Lip, released in 2000, was well received by the critics. The band's studio album, Black Ice, released in 2008, was the second highest selling album of the year and their biggest chart hit since For Those About to Rock, eventually reaching number one on all charts. And the interesting part about that, too, is that Black Ice was exclusive at Walmart. Really? Yeah, they had the exclusive rights to it, so for it to go to Walmart with all their editing bullshit that they did, remember back in the day? Yeah. And to be that big of a seller was impressive. That is, yeah. So the band's lineup remained the same until 2014 with Malcolm Young's retirement due to early onset dementia and Rudd's legal troubles. In 2016, Johnson was advised to stop touring on account of worsening hearing loss, and Guns N' Roses frontman Axl Rose stepped into the band's vocalist for the remainder of the year's dates. Long-term bass player and background vocalist Cliff Williams retired from the band at the end of their 2016 Rocker Bust World Tour. ACDC has sold more than 200 million records worldwide, including 71.5 million albums in the United States, adding them to the list of highest certified music artists in the United States and the list of best-selling music artists. Back in Black has sold an estimated 50 million units worldwide. That's insane. If I'm not mistaken, it's like either either second or third on the top of all time. Making it the second highest-selling album by any artist and the highest-selling album by any band. The band has sold 22 million units in the U.S., where the sixth highest-selling album of all time. ACDC ranked fourth on VH1's list of the 100 greatest artists of hard rock and were named the seventh greatest heavy metal band of all time by MTV. In 2004, ACDC ranked number 72 on the Rolling Stone list of the 100 greatest artists of all time. Producer Rick Rubin, who wrote an essay on the band for the Rolling Stone list, referred to ACDC as the greatest rock and roll band of all time. 
In 2010, ACDC were ranked number 23 in the VH1 list of the 100 greatest artists of all time. According to ACDC.com, Axl Rose is not a member of ACDC, though other outlets have made him a full member. The website lists Brian Johnson and Bon Scott as the vocalists and Malcolm Young as the guitar player. With no tour dates listed on their website and no upcoming albums, could this be the end of ACDC? So, the song Let There Be Rock is a bluesy-feeling rock song, spoken more than sung with guitar riffs and areas where all there was were the drums. I'm kind of eh to the song, honestly. It, it has a place, and that place was about 1979. Music is great. Vocals are lacking, in my opinion. I gave this a six simply because it's ACDC. Now, I have to say that I have some. I had some honorable mentions, because I wanted to throw ACDC on the list. And my honorable mentions were If You Want Blood, You Got It, which I know that I think we talked about with Dawn. I think so, yeah. Um, it's A Long Way to the Top, which was played in School of Rock, which was a great movie. Oh, that's an amazing movie. And Thunderstruck, because it's just a great song. That one, if you don't get your heart rate up just from hearing that song, you're dead. Now, Let There Be Rock, ACDC is either Bon Scott or Brian Johnson, period. To me, at least. I know that you're an Axel fan. I'm an Axel fan, but... I, I don't know how I feel about him being the front man of ACDC. And like I said, he's not on their official website as a member. I didn't care for it from the videos I've watched. Maybe it's different live, because sometimes it is. Yeah. Johnson had so many amazing songs, but we can't forget the band. You know, it wouldn't have been without the high-pitched wail of Scott. It just wouldn't have been. I mean, your Highway to Hell, your you know prior songs and everything just wouldn't have been. The song is about as old as I am, and it's a staple of classic rock. Apparently, I'm not alone, because... They've included it on four of six of their live CDs. So, for, uh, what, I don't know what the percentage is, and I don't care to do the math on it, but better than half. 60. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, four of six would be two-thirds, so 66. Yeah, 66.6. So around around two-thirds. So on two-thirds of their live albums, they go ahead and put this song on here. And I have to say that when I saw them live on the Black Ice Tour, they played this song, and it made my night. It absolutely did. Now, when you went to go see ACDC, because I did this when I went to see Bon Jovi, mm -hmm. did you have like a list of songs that's like, God, they better play these songs? In my head, I did. Yeah. There, well, was, yeah. there was a couple that, I mean, I had seen playlists because what happened with us is that they were supposed to play in like November or something in Des Moines. And due to, I want to say stomach issues with Brian Johnson, they canceled it, but pushed it back. So the, typical, the, excuse me, the tickets that we bought were good in April. And it turned out that the date that they played was a Saturday after the Friday night Elton John concert that I also had tickets to. Nice. So it was Elton on Friday, and I was like in 50th row or something. It was like nosebleed floor seats or whatever. But he played for three and a half hours. But then ACDC when I was in the 12th row. Nice. Angus walked past me to the scissor jack and back down. And when I was able to hear on Sunday, <laughs> I'm... I'm Kind of joking, but mostly not. Right, right. I went through and listened to their catalog again, and again, to it made my night. I heard Thunderstruck, I heard their new stuff, which Black Ice was actually a pretty damn good album, actually. Most of what was included on the um, the Iron Man 2 soundtrack, I want to say. Okay. In fact, the Iron Man 2 soundtrack, I think, was basically ACDC. It's the greatest hits, almost. Okay. Like, like Shoot to Thrill and a bunch of other stuff. And I just loved it. Uh, this one, for me, this is a nine. This is one of my favorite of all time songs. The video for it's pretty amazing. They're they're in a church and actually. Yeah, I, I saw the video. I it's just. It's not yours. Yeah. Um, it's fun to play on rock. I think it's Rock Band. The, okay. The video game, 
It's a 13 fucking minute song on Rock Band, which means you better get your ass ready to keep playing because of that long ass solo at the end. Right. And Bon Scott, I think, almost broke his ankle when he jumped. If you watch the video when he's jumping down after taking the, the vestments off, mm-hmm. you actually see him just flop like a sack of shit right in the ground. And he, I guess, almost broke an ankle. Really? Yeah. All right. So there's your trivia for the day. There we go. If you couldn't tell I'm an ACDC fan. What? No. Not quite fanboy, but I'm a fan. I'd say fanboy. But hey, all right, let's move on. So, Give Me Three Steps by Leonard Skinnerd. So, Give Me Three Steps is a song by Southern rock band Leonard Skinnerd, released on its 1973 debut album, pronounced Leonard Skinnerd. You know how hard it is to write that? Because you look at the actual, I don't know if you've ever seen the album cover of this, yeah. but it actually has like the dictionary, like dictions and everything to you it. You mean like that? Exactly <laughs> like that. And not like you can hear it hear it with whatever, but look it up on Wikipedia yeah. or something. Yeah. But try it doesn't have the same effect as when you see it. No, no. So so the song often can often be heard on many classic rock radio stations today. It was written by Alan Collins and Ronnie Van Zant. The song never charted, but the album, driven by the success of the single Freebird, became the band's first hit. The song is based on a light, real life experience Ronnie Van Zant had at a biker bar in Jacksonville known as the Pastime having a gun pulled on him for dancing with another man's woman, and thus inspired him to write the lyrics on his way home. It is memorable for its opening riff and engaging narrative of how the singer was dancing with a girl named Linda Lou at a bar called The Jug when a man, probably the girl's boyfriend or husband, enters with a loaded 44 and catches them, angrily believing her to be cheating. The song's title refers to the chorus where the interloper begs for a head start out of the bar. Won't you give me three steps? Give me three steps, mister. Give me three steps towards the door. Give me three steps. Give me three steps, mister, and you'll never see me no more. So Van Zant would sometimes comment in concert, most famously at the Nebworth Festival in 1976, and on one more from the road, that he did not want to fight. Okay, that he did not want to fight him over that cunt anyway. Let's see if three steps is enough. I hate that word, by the way. <laughs> I know. I was wondering if you were actually going to say it or not. <laughs> so Leonard Skinner is an American rock band best known for having popularized the south- southern rock genre before the ni- or during the 1970s. Originally formed in 1964 as My Backyard in Jacksonville, Florida, the band was also known by the names such as The Noble Five and One Percent before finally deciding on Leonard Skinner in 1969. The band gained worldwide recognition for its live performances and signature songs Sweet Home Alabama and Freebird. At the peak of their success, band members Ronnie Van Zant and Steve Gaines and backup singer Cassie Gaines died in an airplane crash in 1977, putting an abrupt end to the 1970s era of the band. The surviving band members reformed in 1987 for a reunion tour with lead vocalist Johnny Van Zant, the younger brother of Ronnie Van Zant. Leonard Skinner continues to tour and record with co-founder Gary Rossington, Johnny Van Zant, and Ricky Medlock who first wrote and recorded with the band from 1971 to 72 before his return in 1996. Fellow founding member Larry Junstrom, along with 1970s member Ed King and Artemis Pyle, remain active in music but no longer tour or record with the band. Michael Cartalone has 
recorded and toured with the band since 1999. Leonard Skinner has sold 28 million records in the United States. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on March 13, 2006. And on January 25, 2018, Leonard Skinner announced their farewell tour. Skinner has released 14 studio albums, with 2012's Last of the Dying Breed being their most recent release. This song, Give Me Three Steps, is a classic southern rock. Not much to say, I just love this song. The driving guitars, the vocals of Ronnie, the whole package, man. I gave it an 8. So, no... I had mentioned that the version that I liked better was the live version. Did you listen to the record, the studio or the live? I listened to the studio. Okay. The live one is from One More From The Road. Okay. Um, I think I actually have that one. It's off of Golden Platinum also. First things first, honorable mentions. Skinnerd, I like Skinnerd. Um, honorable mentions for me are Call Me The Breeze, which I know we've talked about in the past. Skinnerd Nation, which is off one of the more recent ones. Yep. I think it's off of uh, God and Guns. Or I Vicious, think it's God and Guns, yeah. Or Vicious Circle, one or the other. Free Bird, of course. Um, I Know a Little, which for whatever reason I just really enjoy that song. That Smell, and then Sweet Home Alabama, even though the state of Alabama is a bullshit state. And I have to throw one in there. My favorite Skinner song is Simple Man. It's a good song. It's one I can't listen to a lot, though. It's kind of like I, when we talked about your list, how there was the songs that you're like, I don't want to comment, I don't want to rate. Right. That's Simple Man for me. Okay. I couldn't rate it. I can't listen to a lot because it just brings, for lack of a better way to put it, the feels. Okay. Now... This song is personal for me because, and I know my dad's hopefully probably listening to this one. He knew I liked to listen to music, and I had this Panasonic tape player that I swear to God, this thing was made of titanium or something because that fucker was unbreakable. Oh, I yeah. The usually. only thing I had that broke off it was the little plastic cover of it, but otherwise I'd use this to listen to everything. So for my, my dad, for all intents and purposes, made me a mixtape of different rock songs that were on here. In fact, a couple others on this list are from that as well. Okay. And I would listen to it either at night or after going to bed. I would lay there in my fire engine bunk bed. I swear to God, I had a fire engine bunk bed. The engine area was a toy box. It was, nice. cool, it was cool as shit. Cool, yeah. And listen to this tape repeatedly. Now, it was about that time that I learned if you press the pause button down slightly, it would speed it up like Chickmunk style. Okay. I don't know if you remember doing that or not. I do not. And... I was admonished because I was told that I would fuck up the tape and it would break it because he did that. But, of course, I didn't stop doing it. Right. So the opening sequence of the song, when they had the drum beats going in here, listening to that sped up was so damn hilarious that I just couldn't stop doing it. I was a kid. Yep. So this song for me is a seven. It's a solid seven for me. And, again, to lots of um, lots of family memories with that one. Right, right. All right. So up next, we're going to go with Dreamer by Supertramp. So Dreamer is a hit single from Supertramp's 1974 album, Crime of the Century. It peaked at number 13 on the UK Singles Chart in February 1975, and in 1980 it appeared on the band's live album, Paris. This live version was also released as a single and hit number 15 on the US Charts, number 36 in the Dutch Top 40, and number 1 on the Canadian Singles Chart. Dreamer also appeared on Hodgson's album, Classic Live. Recorded on tour in 2010. Dreamer was composed by Roger Hodgson and his Wurlitzer piano at his mother's house when he was 19 years old. At the time, he recorded a demo of the song using vocals, Wurlitzer, and banging cardboard boxes for percussion. Hodgson recalled, I was excited. It was the first time I'd laid hands on a Wurlitzer. Supertramp cut their own recording of the song in imitation of this early demo. The band performed the song on the BBC's Old Grey Whistle Test Show in 1974, during which John Helliwell, 
can be seen playing the rim of a wine glass on top of his keyboard to achieve a certain sound effect. The song was used in the films The Parole Officer, Wild Thing, and The Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle, as well as its trailer. Let's take a moment to dream. Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle is in that live-action kind of half-in thing with Robert De Niro on it? Yes. Good lord. What a waste of a song. No shit. So Supertramp, known as Daddy in 1969 and 70. That's just dirty. Are an English rock band formed in London in 1969. Though their music was initially categorized as progressive rock, shout out Al, they later incorporated a combination of traditional rock, pop, and art rock into their music. The band's work is marked by the individual songwriting of founders Roger Hodgson and Rick Davies, and the prominent use of Wurlitzer electric piano and saxophone. Through their early style was progressive, they would enjoy greater commercial success when they incorporated more radio-friendly pop elements into their work in the mid-1970s, going on to sell more than 60 million albums. The band reached their commercial peak in, with 1997's Breakfast in America, which sold more than 20 million copies. Supertramp attained significant popularity in the UK, US, Canada, Europe, South America, and Australia. Since co-founder Hodginson's departure in 1983, Davies has led the band by himself. Supertramp is still technically active today, though their last studio album was 2002's Slow Motion. They have released 11 studio albums to date. The song itself, Dreamer, reminds me a lot of something I might hear from Kansas or Boston or, or some other band of that era. Which all are good bands. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's really nothing special, but... I really do like the musical arrangement. That said, I gave it a six. You know, and this is another one that was actually put on that mixtape. Um, okay. I've always enjoyed Supertramp, and when they came on, it just it was a fun band to listen to. I knew this girl that was a Supertramp. Ah, nice. That's not the one you're married to, right? No. Thank God, because <laughs> otherwise that would have been unfortunate. Does she look like a Supertramp to you? If people change as they get older. Who knows? Maybe she was kind of crazy in the high school years. Who knows? Well, she was. She's still crazy today, but that's not, that doesn't make her a tramp. Well, different in a different way. I mean, there's <laughs> there's bat shit, and then there's other kinds. But in any respect, for me, when I was younger, this seemed like a peppier version of Pink Floyd. Um, I can see that. And But then again, it could have just been my young years not knowing the difference between Brit bands. Kind of, they all sound alike to me type things. For whatever reason, this song I was just really, really drawn to. Um, for me, it was a seven. Okay. So how long do you think it's going to take before Al calls me up and he's like, would you stop telling that shit about prog rock about me all the time? You know what, though? Maybe he's digging it really a lot, though. Maybe he is. Let, let me know, Al. Are you digging it when we uh, do the call out to prog rock for you, or, or do you want me to stop? Because <laughs> even if you do, I'm probably not going to. Anyway, let's move on. All right. Eat the Rich is a song performed by American hard rock band Aerosmith. It was written by Steven Tyler, Joe Perry, and Jim Valance. It was released as the second single from the band's 1993 album, Get a Grip. The song has had success on rock radio, peaking at number five on the mainstream rock tracks chart. It's another one of these charts that are like, yeah, it it, it charted here. Well, you know, it's, it's almost like they make up charts every now and then. It, it feels like it, doesn't it? So in the UK, where the song was the second single released from the album, it peaked at number 34, and in Canada, it peaked at number 45. The band's next four singles and correlating videos were able to garner more mainstream success for the album. 
The song quickly became a fan favorite, despite not having much mainstream success, and drew a rousing reaction from crowds when it was used as the band's opening song on the Get a Grip tour. The band has played the song several times on the Root of All Evil tour, despite being generally limited to a 13-song set list. The song was featured on the band's 1994 Geffen Records-era Greatest Hits album, Big Ones, as well as the first song on the live double album, A Little South of Sanity. So, you ready for a big helping? Let's eat the rich. That is probably my favorite transition I wrote in this entire episode. I I enjoyed that one. You did well. (laughs) Aerosmith is an American rock band, sometimes referred to as the Bad Boys from Boston, and America's greatest rock and roll band. You think maybe the second one's what they call themselves? Their style, which is rooted in blues-based hard rock, has come to also incorporate elements of pop, heavy metal, and rhythm and blues, and has inspired many subsequent rock artists. They were formed in Boston, Massachusetts in 1970. Guitarist Joe Perry and bassist Tom Hamilton, originally in a band together called The Jam Band, met up with vocalist, pianist, harmonicist Steven Tyler, drummer Joey Kramer, and guitarist Ray Tabano, and formed Aerosmith. In 1971, Tabano was replaced by Brad Whitford, and the band began developing a following in Boston. They were signed to Columbia Records in 1972 and released a string of gold and platinum albums, beginning with their 1973 debut album, Aerosmith followed by Get Your Wings in 1974. In 1975, the band broke into the mainstream with the album Toys in the Attic, and their 1976 follow-up, Rocks, cemented their status as hard rock superstars. Toys in the Attic is such a great album. What's that? Toys in the Attic is such a great album. Next to Pump, it might be their best. That's just my opinion, but... Okay. um, Two additional albums followed in 1977 and 79. Their first five albums have since attained multi-platinum status. Throughout the 1970s, the band toured extensively and charted a dozen Hot 100 singles. By the end of the decade, they were among the most popular hard rock bands in the world and developed a loyal following of fans, often referred to as the Blue Army. That I don't understand. I'm not getting that one either. But anyway. If you uh, know, write in, let us know. Yeah, please do. However, drug addiction and internal conflict took their toll on the band, which led to the departure of Perry and Whitford in 1979 and 1981, respectively. They were replaced by Jimmy Crespo and Rick Dufay. The band did not fare well between 1980 and 1984, releasing the album Rock in a Hard Place, which certified gold but failed to match the previous successes. Perry and Whitford returned to Aerosmith in 1984, and the band signed a new deal with Geffen Records. After a comeback tour, the band recorded Done With Mirrors in 1985, which won some critical praise but failed to come close to commercial expectations. It was not until the band's collaboration with rap group Run DMC in 1986 and the 1987 multi-platinum release Permanent Vacation that they regained the level of popularity they had experienced in the 70s. In the late 1980s and 1990s, the band scored several hits and won numerous awards for music from the multiple platinum albums Pump, 1989, Get a Grip, 1993, and Nine Lives, 1997, and embarked on their most extensive concert tours to date. The band also became a pop culture phenomenon with popular music videos and notable appearances in television, film, and video games. 
Their comeback has been described as one of the most remarkable and spectacular in rock and roll history. Additional albums followed in 2001, 2004, and 2012. After 48 years of performing, the band continues to tour and record music, but is embarking on a farewell tour that will likely last several years. Aerosmith is the best-selling American hard rock band of all time, having sold more than 150 million records worldwide, including over 70 million records in the United States alone. With 25 gold albums, 18 platinum albums, and 12 multi-platinum albums, they hold the record for the most total certifications by an American band and are tied for the most multi-platinum albums by an American band. The band has scored 21 top 40 hits on the Billboard Hot 100, 9 number 1 mainstream rock hits, 4 Grammy Awards, 6 American Music Awards, and 10 MTV Video Music Awards. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2001 and were included among both Rolling Stones and VH1's lists of the 100 Greatest Artists of All Time. In 2013, the band's principal songwriter, Tyler and Perry, were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Aerosmith has 15 studio albums with 2012's Music from Another Dimension being their last studio album. The Toxic Twins pulled off another amazing song. The song itself is one of my favorites off of Get a Grip. I've always loved Aerosmith, and this song is just fun. Remember that those attitudes sure taste like shit, but go great with wine. I gave it a 7. And that's one that we actually agreed on. Um, now, my honorable mention for Aerosmith was Toys in the Attic. The The song is good. The album is amazing. Yep. They've been rocking forever. I mean, while any of their older 70s, such as, as like Sweet Emotion, Walk This Way, Mama Can, Same Old Song and Dance, I mean, any of those could have been picked. I mean, that'd be kind of the easy choice, yeah. kind of the easy way out. Speaking of which, you're a fan of Mel Brooks, right? Yep. You know how they got the song, the, the title for Walk This Way, right? No. It oh, from... From Young Frankenstein. Oh, really? Yes. In fact, uh, I want to say Perry and Tyler watched that movie, and then because of Igor doing the Walk This Way, that's how the song got its name. Nice. And that's been confirmed, too. That's not just like some random bullshit okay, thing. Okay. It's actually confirmed by the band. Anyways, so this song, the Eat the Rich, it made the list. It's one of the modern ones that I chose, 1993 being modern-ish, I guess. Yeah, I didn't really look at the years that you had chosen, so. Yeah. During their revival in the late 80s and the early 90s, I started listening to them again with 1987's Permanent Vacation and through 1993's Get a Grip. The album itself was okay, except for the whiny shit songs like Crazy and Amazing and Crying, which there's basically one song that are slightly different. Yes, but I gotta say, I do like all three of those songs. You like the videos with Alicia Silverstone and Liv Tyler. What's wrong with that? I'm That's actually part of my notes. That's what made the songs okay. <laughs> so, Shut Up and Dance is on, is on that album, which is also a very good song. They use it in the Wayne's World 2 soundtrack, but I still like Eat the Rich better. Um, it's just a more fun song. It's a tribal song with the, like the drums and the beats and everything else. It's basically the rich condescending people that they can go fuck themselves. And it's, it's just one of my favorites. I actually also, as I mentioned, gave it a seven. Nice. So what's he got next? All right. So the next one, I think I'm going to, I'm going to surprise you, I think. When okay. we get to the rating. So, okay. Hot for Teacher by Van Halen is a song taken from their sixth studio album, 1984. The song was written by band members Eddie Van Halen, Alex Van Halen, Michael Anthony, and David Lee Roth. Or is it Anthony? That's an Anthony. Okay. And produced by Ted Templeman. It was released as the fourth and final single from the album in October 1984. It was the final single released by Van Halen's original lineup. The song is best known for Alex Van Halen's double bass drum performance and its music video, featuring the band as both adults and young students. The end of the song comes from the studio outtake from the band's club days entitled Voodoo Queen. 
The Parents Music Resource Center protested the song due to its sexual suggestive lyrics and music video. (laughs) (laughs) In 2009, it was named the 36th best hard rock song of all time by VH1. The music video was filmed at John Marshall High School with Phil Hartman performing the voice of Waldo, the video's protagonist. Along with Waldo, the kids' versions of Van Halen faced the trials and tribulations of grade school. Once the school teacher, played by Lillian Mueller, arrives, she steps onto the desk, arrayed like a runway. She tears off her dress, revealing a bikini bottom, crop top, and sash that reads, Phys Ed. All to the cheers of the students, male and female. At the end of the video, the kids are shown to have grown up beca- and to become a gynecologist, Alex Van Halen, a sumo wrestle, Michael wrestler, Anthony. Michael Anthony, <laughs> a psychiatric hospital patient, Eddie Van Halen, and game show host, David Lee Roth. Isn't that kind of what he is anyway? Yeah, he is. And actually, I think they play a little bit on that with um, when he did when he went solo, they did a little bit of the Just a Gigolo thing with Dave TV. Oh, okay, They yeah. did a little bit of that with as well. Well, it is said that no one knows for sure what Waldo grew up to be. The video hints at him becoming a pimp, the total opposite of his child self. You know, I got to say, it doesn't hint at that. It pretty much plays it out right frickin' there. Yeah, he's dressed like a pimp with chicks around him, and he's got a nice car behind him. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's a pimp. This is intercut with scenes with the band members dressed in red suits and dancing to the song under a disco ball. Tell me, you're not hot for teacher. was at one time i i can i and you're gonna you're gonna lie hey, to me. aren't you still hot for teacher your wife is a teacher oh there you go yeah <laughs> you know but i will say this if you tell me that you never had a crush on any of your teachers i'm gonna call you a fucking liar oh absolutely i did one of my teachers was from high school that ended up um causing a divorce of one of the other teachers and ran off with him it left was a, you in the dust. It was a scandal in a Catholic high school. Yeah, yeah. So Van Halen is an American hard rock band formed in Pasadena, California in 1972. From 1974 until 1985, the band consisted of guitarist Eddie Van Halen, vocalist David Lee Roth, drummer Alex Van Halen, and bassist Michael Anthony. The band went on to become major stars, and by the early 1980s, they were one of the most successful rock acts of the time. In 19, 1984 was their most successful album. The lead single, Jump, became an international hit and their only single to reach number one on the Billboard Hot 100. The following singles, Panama and I'll Wait, both hit number 13 on the U.S. charts. The album went on to sell over 12 million copies in the U.S. alone. In 1985, the band replaced lead singer David Lee Roth with former Montrose lead vocalist Sammy Hagar. With Hagar, the group would release four U.S. number one albums over the course of 11 years. Hagar left the band in 1996, shortly before the release of the band's first greatest hits collection, Best Of, Volume 1. Former extreme frontman Gary Sharon was we, quickly... We don't talk about those times. ...was quickly recruited as lead singer to replace Hagar, and Van Halen 3 was released in 1998. Sharon left the band in frustration in 1999 after the tour due to poor commercial performance of the album. The album was a turd. Because it had Gary Sharon. Exactly. He was what, extreme, I think? Yes, so, Van Halen went on hiatus until 2003 when it reunited with Hagar for a worldwide tour. 
The reunited band released a second greatest hits collection following the, the following year, The Best of Both Worlds. Like Volume 1 before it, The Best of Both Worlds included material from both Roth and Hagar eras, but omitted any Sharon-era tracks. Well, that was clever as hell, though. I mean, Best of Both Worlds, I mean, that's, that is a title of one of Van Halen's songs. Yep. Um, I believe it was actually a, a Hagar song. It was Hagar, yep. And, I mean, honestly, think about it. Whoever decided to choice The Best of Both Worlds, both, both being Hagar and Roth, perfect. Right. There is no better way to do it. So, the album featured three brand new tracks recorded by the reunited band, two of which were released as singles. Hagar again left Van Halen in 2005, and in 2006, Roth returned as lead vocalist for their highest-grossing tour and one of the highest-grossing tours of that year. Anthony was not invited to participate in the tour when his, and was essentially fired from the band, replaced by Wolfgang Van Halen, Eddie's son. In 2012, the band released the commercially and critically successful A Different Kind of Truth with Roth as lead vocalist. According to the RIAA, Van Halen is the 19th best-selling band artist in United States history, selling 56 million albums in the U.S. They were also revealed at number four on Billboard's Top Moneymakers list in 2013. Van Halen is one of only five rock bands that have had two studio albums sell more than 10 million copies in the U.S. Additionally, Van Halen charted the most number one hits in the history of Billboard mainstream rock chart, and they are one of the world's best-selling bands of all time, having sold more than 80 million records. Van Halen achieved worldwide fame for their many popular songs and larger-than-life stage performances. They also became known for the drama surrounding the departures of former members. Controversy surrounded the band following the exits of Roth, Hagar, and Anthony. This controversy often included numerous conflicting press statements between the former members and the band. In 2007, Van Halen was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, VH1 ranked them 7th on their top list of the top 100 hard rock artists of all time. Van Halen had had 12 studio albums with 2012's A Different Kind of Truth being their latest album. Now, the song Hot for Teacher. I could go nasty, but I won't. I could talk about the music, but I won't. I know Van Halen is one of Lou's favorite bands, so I'm going to step back here and say that I really enjoy the song. I gave it 8 of 10. And let him talk about the song. I, I need a second to actually <laughs> pick call, your, your chin I, I up off to, the I ground. I need to collect myself after this, really. Now I'm going to do my honorable mentions first. Um, Humans being, remember the movie Tri uh, Twister? Yes. That was the main Van Halen song from Twister. For whatever reason, I love that song. Okay. And then off of the original Van Halen album, it's called the song's called "I'm the One." Those are my three favorites, but this one is still my favorite of all time. And does the video have anything to do with that? Which one? Hot for Teacher. A little bit, I'm sure. Because it was epic. This video was fucking epic. There's no other word that can describe this. Seriously. Van Halen, I know much to Sh Chad's chagrin, is one of my favorite game uh, bands. Uh, my uncle, my dad to a lesser extent, got me into them as a kid. And then from that point forward, I was a fan. And nearly everything we've done, as I mentioned, we do not talk about the Gary Times. Are there any songs... Okay, I gotta ask you this. Are there any songs from the album that Gary Sharon put out that are that have any merit at all? I would be... It would be difficult for me to find one. I'd have to actually look it up. Okay. If that tells you anything. Now, the song starts off, as you had mentioned, with the amazing double bass, which is pretty damn incredible. Yeah. It sounds... I know my dad liked it because it sounded like... Kind of like a Harley, actually. Well, and you know, a double bass riff like that from a drummer usually is only heard in like punk rock mm -hmm. so for a guy well, until, until metallica well okay but i mean that that's that's a punk rock trick the double bass mm -hmm. 
So to hear a guy who plays rock and roll pull it off and pull it off so seamlessly. Oh, it's seamlessly, perfect. It, amazing. You know, and it sounds like a motorcycle or muscle car, whatever you decide to do with it. And the song just goes awesome from there. Um, it's entertaining. It's got an amazing harmony between the entire band. It showed The video shows off how Alex Van Halen cannot dance. Because if you remember watching that, he cannot keep time with the other three members. I mean, granted, Dave is the lead the lead, and everything else. Right. But the other ones, he is always at least a second or two behind. I remember watching a pop-up video and they mentioned them like, I never noticed that before, but oh my god, he's terrible. Oh yeah, I noticed it right away because he's like, they're like all the way through the turn and he's like halfway there, and yeah, it's like he's but, lost back there. Exactly. You know, but I tell you what, you put him behind a drum set and he is amazing. I went and saw I saw Van Halen as my first I want to say finger quotes real concert in 2004. They played up in Ames, Iowa. Okay. And I have the T-shirt. It shows a picture of Keds or not Keds, but um, like Chuck Taylors. Okay. With the frankenstein guitar image uh what's it called like the um um i can't remember what the word i'm looking for is like the pattern that's it okay the pattern of it on the shoes and then it has all the cities on the back i paid a hundred dollars a ticket for that and me and my ex-wife went and saw that one and it was one of the last tours with um with uh sammy okay absolutely worth it because who knows how much longer they were going to go. True. Same thing with ACDC. I'm like, dude, I don't want to go and have like some you know, Angus be the only guy and the rest of them are just being some posers who want to be ACDC. Right. So I got to see them when they were still ACDC. Fair enough. And anyways, I got an eight. So we agreed. Yes, twice, in fact. It's kind of scary, my Especially friend. on a Van Halen one. That I... shocks the shit out of me. So. Well, in my defense... It is a Roth song. So is that like my like my birthday present? Yes, you, you agreed on a song for me? A Van Halen song. Nice. And honestly, I didn't pick a Roth song because I know you'd be nicer to it. I'll be honest about that. But I knew you would be a little easier on it because of a Roth song. Plus, this is just a really good Roth song. It is. It really is. That isn't a cover. Because You Really Got Me is a good damn song, but it's a kink song. Yeah, exactly. So, so let's move on. Now, this one kind of shocked me when I saw it on your list, but Without Me is a song by American rapper Eminem from his fourth studio album, The Eminem Show. And I say it shocked you because you and I both say the same thing. I got no time for fucking rap. No, rap and hip-hop sometimes don't really deserve the celluloid, <laughs> but move on. So Without Me was released on May 14, 2002 as the lead single from the album and re-released on his greatest hits compilation album, Curtain Call, The Hits 2005. Without Me is one of Eminem's most successful singles, reaching number two in the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 and number one in 15 countries. It is one of his most well-known and most recognizable songs. The song is included in the soundtrack for the 2016 film Suicide Squad, which was a horrible, horrible fucking movie. It was pretty damn terrible. The song was Eminem's return after the successful The Marshall Mathers LP, intended as a sequel to The Real Slim Shady, and essentially saying that he is back to save the world. It also refers to Eminem's role in the music industry and his effect on culture. The song mocks a number of Eminem's critics, including then-Vice President Dick Cheney, including his reoccurring heart problems, and his wife Lynn, the FCC, Chris Kirkpatrick of NSYNC, Limp Biscuit, and Moby, as well as parodying Prince's decision to change his name to a symbol. It also lampoons comparisons of him to Elvis Presley as a white man succeeding commercially in a predominantly black art form. A line also attacks his mother, Debbie Mathers, for the lawsuit she filed for the lyrics of his debut single, My Name Is. The opening lyric, Two Trailer Park Girls Go Round the Outside, is based on the single Buffalo Gals by Malcolm McLaren and Mock's underground artist Cannabis 
while the introduction, Obi Trice, real name, no gimmicks, is sampled from Obi Trice's own track, Rack Name. The background saxophone riff was sampled in Drunk Monkey's 2002 club hit, E. Drunk, Drunk Mon- Monkey. I'm sorry, I might have to start listening to that just because of the name, or at least check them out. Dr- Drunken Monkey is what it's called. Um, some of the lyrics are altered on the clean version, such as, This is about to get heavy, replace the shit's about to get heavy. Also, fuck that, come on your lips and some on your tits. It's changed to jump back, jiggle your hips, and wiggle a bit. The censored, I guess I've never heard the censored version before. I haven't before. either. The censored version also replaces Fag with Stan when referring to Moby, a reference to the popular track from the Marshall Mathers LP, Let's See What It's Like Without Me. But it feels so empty without me, so come on and dip, come on your lips, fuck that, come on your lips, and some on your tits, and get ready, cause this shit's about to get heavy, I just settled all my lawsuits, fuck you, Debbie! Now this looks like a job for me, so everybody, just follow me, cause we need a little controversy, cause it feels so empty without me, I said this looks like a job for me, so everybody, just follow me, cause we need a little controversy, cause it feels so empty without me. So Marshall Bruce Mathers III. Bruce? Bruce. Bruce. Are you picking on my list? I didn't know if you were fucking with me or not. I'm like, is that supposed to be Bruce or is that supposed to be Bruce? Marshall Bruce Mathers III. Oh, okay. That's got to stay in, by the way. Known professionally as Eminem, is an American rapper, songwriter, record producer, record executive, and actor. Fine. I'll leave it in. Eminem is the best-selling artist of the 2000s in the United States. Throughout his career, he has had 10 number one albums on the Billboard 200 and five number one singles on the Billboard Hot 100. With 47.4 million albums sold in the U.S. and 220 million records globally, he's among the world's best-selling artists of all time. Additionally, he is the only artist to have eight albums consecutively debut at number one on the Billboard 200. Rolling Stone ranked him number 83 on the list of 100 greatest artists of all time, calling him the king of hip-hop. After his debut album, Infinite, in 1996, and then Slim Shady EP, 1997, Eminem signed with Dr. Dre's Aftermath Entertainment and subsequently achieved mainstream popularity in 1999 with the Slim Shady LP, which earned him his first Grammy Award for Best Rap Album. His next two releases, 2000's The Marshall Mathers LP and 2002's The Eminem Show, were worldwide successes, with each being certified diamond in U.S. sales and both winning Best Rap Album Grammy Awards making Eminem the first artist to win an award for three consecutive LPs. They were followed by Encore in 2004, another critical and commercial success. Eminem went on hiatus after touring in 2005, releasing Relapse in 2009 and Recovery in 2010. Both won Grammy Awards and Recovery was the best-selling album of 2010 worldwide, the second time he had the international best-selling album of the year after the Eminem show. Eminem's eighth album, 2013's The Marshall Mather LP 2, won two Grammy Awards, including Best Rap Album. It expanded his record for the most wins in that category and his Grammy total to 15. In 2017, he released his ninth studio album, Revival. In addition to his solo career, Eminem is an original member of the Midwest hip-hop groups Soul Intent and D12. Never heard of him. Me either. He is also known for his collaborations with fellow Detroit-based rapper Royce Da 5'9". And the two are collectively known as Bad Meets Evil. So, is this how they? Is there another Royce Da that's a different height? I don't know. I don't give a shit. (laughs) (laughs) Eminem has developed other ventures, including Shady Records with manager Paul Rosenberg, which helped launch the careers of artists such as 50 Cent. Eminem has also established his own channel, Shade 45, on Sirius XM Radio. 
In November 2002, he starred in the hip-hop film 8 Mile, which won the Academy Award for Best Original Song for Lose Yourself, becoming the first rap artist to ever win the award. Eminem has made cameo appearances in the films The Wash, 2001, Funny People, 2009, The Interview, 2014, which is a hilarious movie. Is it? It is. Isn't that the one with, like, Kim Jong? Yes, it is hilarious. That actually got panned. They didn't release it. Like right away because of the whole controversy. Well, or yeah, but it. it was. If you have not seen it, it's worth your time. All right. Is do you know if it's on the the streaming service, the N one? I don't know. The N one. We don't want to pay royalties, so the <laughs> N one. And the television series Entourage in 2010. I did watch that. Eminem has nine studio albums, with 2017's revival being the latest. Still active. I'm sure we will see more of Eminem soon. Now the song. It's rough, and I love it. I'm not a rap guy, but I really enjoy Eminem. This song is fun in my opinion. He had just finished up being banned from MTV and getting through lawsuit after lawsuit. Eminem is a game changer. The song is a little shout back at all the people who shouted at him. Honestly, it's music people. Get over yourself. I gave it an 8. As we have both mentioned multiple times, neither one of us are really big rap or hip-hop heads. Just not our thing. Right. That being said, it's a great song. Um, yeah, I didn't care for the Slim Shady, the Slim Shady bullshit, and I kind of wrote him off, because the whole blonde-haired Slim Shady thing just irritated me. Okay. Even though I dyed my hair blonde for a while, and actually I was called Slim, and I will show you pictures, it's really messed up. <laughs> it sounds kind of scary, to be honest. He and his material matured, and started to come around, and when his, mater- his material did, I did too. Um, I enjoy some of his stuff. This one especially. The song is funny. It's got Jenna Jameson in it. If you remember watching the video, I think Jenna and Janine are the two trailer park girls. Okay. And it's got him dressed up as like Robin, like a Batman and Robin type thing. Yes. The video is just fun to watch. I give this one a solid seven, and I, I don't love all of his stuff. Oh no, God no! But he is a good. He's an amazing artist. He really is. I liked this song and a fair amount of his stuff, but not. I couldn't go for, see a concert. You know, for me, Stan and Lose Yourself definitely have to be honorable mentions. Now, Stan was that was the one that we talked about before with the letter, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. It's messed up. Don't get me wrong. Oh yeah, you know, and Lose Yourself is fun, and the whole couch potato weird Al thing was yes. entertaining as well. Off yes. a poodle hat. All right, so let's move on. All right. Cool. Really, son. You're, you're calling it? I'm, oh, God, yeah. That's that. The, I can feel my diabetes dying. Dude, I'm starting to get toasty already, and you're not even f- anything. <laughs> I, I'm having a... Trust me, my blood sugar's up there. Oh, we might even have another one to go later, too. Oh, goody. <laughs> so, Gel by Collective Soul. Collective Soul, sometimes referred to as the Blue Album to differentiate from the second self-titled album, is the second studio album by Collective Soul. So they had two albums called Collective Soul? They did indeed. Them bastards are full of themselves, are they not? They are, but they're selling records. It became the band's highest-selling album to date, going triple platinum, and spent 76 weeks on the Billboard 200 charts. The singles December, That World I Know, and Where the River Flows all reached number one on the mainstream rock tracks chart. While the first two singles also became major pop hits, frontman Ed Rowland has considered Collective Soul the band's true debut album. Hint's allegations and things left unsaid was intended more as a promotional demo and a means of acquiring a publishing contract for Laura Roland, who in 1995 noted, It's so funny for people to compare the two. It's like comparing one band to another band. This record is our first record, flat out. Collective Soul opened for Van Halen during their Balance Tour, which began in March 11, 1995 in Pensacola, Florida, and ended in May 1995. The band then performed at festivals in the United States before taking a break and then continuing with their own solo 
tour, including club shows. Seven songs from the new album were performed on tour, with Shine being the only played track from their previous release. A new unnamed song was also performed in concert. The band's self-titled release included five singles, December, The World I Know, Where the River Flows, Gel, and Smashing Young Man. The three former tracks reached number one on the mainstream rock track charts, and the first two became major pop hits. Music videos were also filmed for some singles and aired significantly on MTV. In a feat similar to its predecessor, Collective Soul received positive reviews with praise handed to it, its strong melodies, but also indifference for the alleged lack of musical innovation. Paul Evans of Rolling Stone gave the album three out of five stars. He noted, Rowland's flair for McCartney-esque melodic detail and summed up that with the band proves it has the goods to continue to shine on brightly. All Music's Tom Demelon chose The World I Know and Gel as AMG track picks. He too commented the strong melodies and stated, while not exactly groundbreaking, Collective Soul delivers the goods with a dozen hook-laden songs for which they were awarded another multi-platinum outing. What is it with these pre, these uh, record people who are reviewing this stuff getting backhanded compliments? It's I like, know. All I the mean, time. these are asshole comments. Like, yeah, you know, you're pretty, pretty, you're pretty, you're very pretty for an ugly person. It's like, what the fuck is the matter with you? Yeah. So, well, let's listen to Jill. All right. So, Collective Soul is an American rock band originally from Stockbridge, Georgia, now based in Atlanta. The group consists of lead vocalist Ed Rowland, rhythm guitarist Dean Rowland, bassist Will Turpin, drummer Johnny Rabond, lead guitarist Jesse Triplett. According to Ed Rowland, the group took its name from the phrase in the Fountainhead, citing that, We're not preaching Ayn Rand, or Ayn Rand objectivism, egoism, egoism, or anything. We just dug the name. Collective Soul has nine studio albums with 2015's See What You Started by continuing as the latest offering. The song Gel, mostly a song about women and how their moods can change on a dime. Pretty straightforward. I enjoy it. I gave it a six. All right. Now, Collective Soul really came into be um, when I was in high school, and actually I really dug their sound. I actually I actually owned Collective Soul, the blue album. As do I. I still do, actually. Uh, they were a solid rock song with a little bit of alt leanings, but not enough to be annoying. Fair enough. Because there's a few bands that when they go alt, they go completely alt, and it's just bullshit. Now, this song is off their first self-titled album, which strangely, strangely, as you've mentioned, they've done two. And it's known as the Blue Album, which stupidly came in a yellow jewel case. I shit you not. When they sent it to us, it came in a yellow case for the Blue Album, so it looked green. Now, the one I bought, which was not when it came out, but the one I bought was just in a clear case with the blue... It was ridiculous. I'm just like, what the hell? And, and this is one of those where it came in multiple different cases, kind of like the Aerosmith, um, I want to say, oh yeah. The Aerosmith, oh yeah, it was on, it was an scene on TV thing, but they also had four different covers for it. Okay. And it depends on if you bought it on TV or if you bought it at Best Buy, Walmart, Target, or wherever, you get a different cover. Yeah, I'm not buying the same goddamn album for the same shit when it's got a different cover. Right. I, I don't care that much. I don't have that kind of money. Well, you know, a lot of albums will do that. Like, one I can think of off the top of my head was Look What the Cat Dragged In. Yeah, but I mean, that one, there's the edited one, and there's the regular one. Right, but there was, there, what it seems to me is like, um, uh, Poison did it with Open Up and Say Ah too. They had their first run. That was the one I'm thinking of, okay. That they, they, had. they had their first run, mm -hmm. which was just a mouth of the tongue, and it said to Open Up and Say Ah. Yep. 
And then when they did a second pressing... They had just the eyes. They had just the eyes. Yep. Yep. And that, and that I can understand because that's kind of a collector. Right. But when it comes to the same album and all it is, like for the Aerosmith one, the only difference is color. There's a blue one, a green one, and a purple one. Oh, and a red one. It's the same fucking thing. I'm not paying extra money for the same goddamn thing. Just saying. Moving on. You guys should just see. He's got a vein popping out on his Pretty, forehead. And on the side of my neck, too. So, anyways, I just remember enjoying the whole album. It's one, it doesn't really have a dog on it, to be quite honest. Not really, no. It's a great album. I would have loved to see them live. I've seen some videos online where they play a lot of other songs. And, and I just remember one off the top of my head on YouTube that um, Roland, the guy who's playing it, they start in with an ACDC song. And they're like, yeah, we don't know the rest of this one. <laughs> and then they start playing Cat Scratch Figure and like, yeah, we don't know this one either. And it's like, you fuckers, come on. But nice. I got the CD sometime in the summer of 95, right before I graduated. And I just remember I listened to it a lot. I listened to it a lot, and surprisingly enough, it turned out really good and worked well for playing Tetris and Dr. Mario. Okay. I have no idea why, but this song, playing video games, just worked. Well, it was better than listening to the music of Tetris. I'm going to disagree because the actual, that Russian song... But for hours on end? That would make you think that I played the Tetris and Dr. Mario for hours on end. You get sick of that game after a while. you got to put a different cartridge in. Come on, man. I feel like Charles Barkley. Come on, man. Come on, man. <laughs> All right, so what do you got next? Uh, Train Train by Blackfoot. Strikes is the third studio album by the American Southern rock band Blackfoot, released in April 1979. The album has received a platinum certification from the RIA in April 1986. The album featured two minor pop hits, Highway Song and Train Train. Train Train was covered by country music legend Dolly Parton on her 1999 album, uh, The Grass is Blue, which won the 2001 Grammy Award for Best Bluegrass Album. Warren covered the song on the 1990 album Cherry Pie. The song has appeared in the 2011 film Straw Dogs. So, let's take the train train. for a second did you say that this was covered by dolly parton yeah holy shit i'm gonna have to look for that all right so there wasn't a whole lot of info out on this song i mean it was a it only reached number 38 um there wasn't a whole lot of information on blackfoot either but they are an american southern rock band from jacksonville florida formed during 1970 though they primarily play with southern rock style they are known as a hard rock act the band's classic lineup consisted of guitarist and vocalist ricky medlock Guitarist Charlie Hagret, bassist John T. or I'm sorry, Greg T. Walker, and drummer Jackson Spires. He had a number of successful albums during the 1970s and early 1980s, including Strikes (1979), Tomcat (1980), and Marauder (1981). Blackfoot has 11 studio albums to date, with 2016 Southern Native being their last offering. The song "Train Train" opens up with an enthusiastic harmonica piece. I've heard this song before, never knew who sang it. It's a great piece of southern rock about a guy chasing down his love who is Memphis bound. I enjoy the guitar in this one, and the harmonica is a really nice touch. I gave it a six. All right, so again, this is another one that was due to a personal subject matter. We lived a block, about a block and a half away from the train tracks. In okay. fact, I mean, you were at the PI with us yep. recently when 20 Watt played, and you noticed there was train tracks right there. Yep. So ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be involved with trains. 
I really did. I mean, it was kind of a little bit of a Leonard with some Sheldon thrown in. Okay. More of the Leonard than the Sheldon, but you may argue that. I like the southern hard rock vibe that Blackfoot gave off, and since it was about trains and the opening harmonica sounded like a train revving up and kind of getting going, I just loved this song from the beginning. Warrant covered it on their Cherry Pie album. It was okay, but the original still better. And the other memory that associated with it was with the vinyl album. The album cover, the album's called Strikes, and the album cover has a cobra with its hood sprayed, and that thing scared the hell out of me. For whatever reason, <laughs> just the picture just startled the shit out of me. Okay. And I know it was just a picture and it wouldn't hurt me, but it really creeped me out when I was a kid. Now, if you remember the show Amazing Stories. Yes. And if you remember Weird Science when they made a picture come to life, that didn't help. It didn't help at all. <laughs> I gave this song a seven, but not because of the album cover, of course, just because of the song. So that's what I got. All right, fair enough. Let's just move right into the next one. I Believe in a Thing Called Love is a song by English rock band The Darkness, released as the third single from their debut studio album Permission to Land. When released as a single in September 2003, it peaked at number two in UK singles chart, just behind the Black Eyed Peas' Where is the Love. Lead singer Justin Hawkins performs much of the song in falsetto. Like most of the band's tracks, it is influenced by 1970s glam rock like T-Rex and Slade. And Slade's pretty damn amazing. I don't know if you've ever listened to some of their stuff. I may I may know a song, but I don't know it by... I bet you you do. Come on, Feel the Noise by the Scorpions. Yeah. Or by uh, Quiet Riot. Yeah. It's a cover of Slade. Okay. It was named the 276th best track of the 2000s by Pitchfork Media. Whatever the fuck that is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I Believe in a Thing Called Love was originally issued as a three-track EP in August 2002. However, as only a small number of copies were printed, it was ineligible to chart. Hey, you got it right. The EP also included early versions of Love on the Rocks with No Ice and Love is Only a Feeling. In March 2005, Q Magazine placed I Believe in a Thing Called Love at number 47 on its list of the 101 greatest guitar tracks. It is also placed number 493 on the 500 greatest songs since you were born on Blender Magazine. It was ranked number one for Classic Rock Magazine's list of the greatest rock songs of the noughties. The noughties. Hello, I'm listening to the Nortes. The song was also named the 94th best hard rock song of all time by VH1. Yeah, VH1 doing these things on hard rock just blows my mind. But anyway. Yeah, I would trust them before I trust MTV, though. A live version of the group's Christmas single, Christmas Time, Don't Let the Bells End. Not a live better. version of the song recorded at Nebworth House in Nebworth House. <laughs> Hathfordshire in 2003 was featured as a B-side to the group's Christmas single, Christmas Time, Don't Let the Bells End. The song peaked at number one in the U.S. iTunes rock chart and at number 67 on the Billboard Hot Digital Songs chart in February 2012 after Justin Hawkins appeared in a commercial during the Super Bowl uh, 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 40, 46. <laughs> Fucking Roman numerals threw me a loop here. You really seriously didn't actually translate it before writing it down? No. It has also <laughs> it has sold 647 copies in the U.S. as of February 2012. Let's all believe in a thing called love. <laughs> Ooh. 
No, I didn't, and I'm not going to edit it out, and there's nothing you can do about it. I don't want you to edit it out. I think it's fucking hilarious. The Darkness are an English rock band from Lowestoft, Suffolk, formed in 2000. The band consists of Justin Hawkins on lead vocals and guitar, his brother Dan Hawkins on guitar and backing vocals, Frankie Poulain, bass and backing vocals, and Rufus Tiger Taylor on drums. Rufus. The Darkness came to prominence with the release of their debut album, Permission to Land, in 2003. Backed by the singles I Believe in a Thing Called Love, Growing on Me, Get Your Hands Off My Woman, and Love is Only a Feeling. The album was certified quadruple platinum in the United Kingdom with sales of over 1.3 million. In 2004, the band won three Brit Awards, Best British Group, Best British Rock Act, and Best British Album. After extensive touring in support of their debut album, Poulan left the band in 2005 and was replaced by former guitar technician Eddie or Richard Richie Edwards. The band's second studio album, One Way Ticket to Hell and Back, was released in November 2005. The following year, Justin Hawkins departed from the band after successfully completing a course of rehabilitation from alcohol and cocaine abuse. As a result, the remaining members formed Stone Gods and continued to perform and record without Hawkins, who subsequently fronted his own project, Hotleg. Hotleg. On March 15, 2011, the Darkness announced reunion shows with original bassist Frankie Poulain, including Download Festival 2011 and the Isle of Wight Festival 2012. Their third album, Hot Cakes, was released on 20, or August 20th, 2012. Ed Graham has since left the band, feeling the strain of touring was affecting his personal life, in which he had pressing issues. I don't want to do this no more. Yeah, I'm, I don't have enough time to jerk it, so you know I don't want to be in the band anymore. In 2015, a four-studio album was announced, entitled Last of Our Kind, which was released on June 2nd. Then, in 2017, the band announced a fifth album was in the works, Pinewood Smile, which was released on October 6th. The song, I believe in a thing called love, still don't like it. I think we did this song before, and I didn't review it so flatteringly at the time, and I have to say it's not going to change. The vocals are passable at best, strained and off. Not off-key, just off. I'll make it short and sweet. Three of ten. All right, now, this song is a 2003 tribute to a throwback of the glam and hair metal sound of the 1980s. I mean, you can't argue that. Nope. I pretty much passed on most of the hair metal during that time when it was, finger quotes, new, but I've come back to some of it to, you know, my later years, you know, trying to check out stuff that I missed out on. The Darkness did a really good job that I would wager that if you put this alongside a Poison, Def Leppard, Rat, White Snake, Warrant, Dokken, or some other hair metal band of that era, you'd be hard-pressed to tell that this was from a 2003. Now, that being said, it, you know, again, too, it'd be hard to tell it was 28, 20 years after the decade. The song is over-the-top rock and roll. The lyrics are awesomely fitting, and so is Justin Hawkins' super high falsetto voice. I like this song from day one, and it makes me grin whenever I hear it, which is why it was included on our Feel Good Happy Songs of episode 44. So there you go. That tells you when we talked about it before. And for the record, this is the only one that I've duplicated, even though I could have done multiple other ones. Oh, yeah. I And it's fine that you duplicated it, but... I didn't like it the first time and, around, and it, <laughs> it hasn't changed. So, this was a six for me. Again, not a great song, not one I'm going to pass on. It's still one of my favorites just because I like the song. So, what do you got for the finale for us? Well, I did this, in all honesty, because I know you. So, we are ending with Louie Louie by the Kingsmen. So, Louie Louie is an American rhythm and blues song written by Richard Berry in 1955 and best known for the 1963 hit version by the Kingsmen. 
It had become a standard in pop and rock with hundreds of versions recorded by different artists. The song is based on the tune El Loco Cha Cha, popularized by band leader Rene Touzette, and is an example of Latin influence on American popular music. Louie Louie tells a simple verse chorus form. First person story of a Jamaican sailor returning to the island to see his lady love. The Kingsman's recording was the subject of an FBI investigation about the supposed non-existent obscenity of the lyrics, an investigation that ended without prosecution. Ironically, the recording notably, notably includes the drummer yelling fuck after dropping his drumstick at the 54-second mark. <laughs> I'm going to have to listen for that now. I know. Louie Louie has been recognized by organizations and publications worldwide for its influence on the history of rock and roll. A partial list include the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Grammy Hall of Fame, National Public Radio, VH1, Rolling Stone, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Recording Industry Association of America. In addition to new versions appearing regularly on YouTube and elsewhere, other major examples of the song's legacy include the unsuccessful attempt in 1985 to make it the state song of Washington. Seriously? Seriously. The celebration of International Louis Louis Day every year on April 11th. I've heard about that, and I really want to go, actually. <laughs> the Louis Louis Annual Parade in Philadelphia from 1985 to 1989. The Louis Fest in Tacoma from 2003 to 2012. And the ongoing annual Louis Louis Parade and Festi Festival in Peoria. So, about the FBI investigation. In February 1964, an outraged parent wrote to Robert Kennedy, then the Attorney General of the United States, alleging that the lyrics of Louie Louie were obscene. The Federal Bureau of Investigation investigated the complaint. In June 1965, the FBI laboratory obtained a copy of the Kingsman recording and, after four months of investigation, concluded that it could not, interpret it, it could not be interpreted that it was unintelligible at any speed and therefore the Bureau could not find that the recording was obscene. Your tax dollars at work, folks. Yeah. Seriously, of all the things that they could worry about, they're worried about a fucking song. And it gets even better. Oh, God. In September 1965, an FBI agent interviewed one member of the Kingsmen who denied that there was any obscenity in the song. The FBI did not interview songwriter Richard Berry, nor did they consult the lyrics on file with the U.S. Copyright Office. A history of the song and its notoriety was published in 1992 by Dave Marsh, but permission could not be obtained to publish the lyrics. Richard Berry told Esquire magazine in 1988 that the Kingsmen had sung the song exactly as written. The lyrics controversy resurfaced briefly in 2005 when the superintendent of the school system in Benton Harbor, Michigan, refused to let the marching band at one of the schools play the song in a parade. She later relented. Let's listen to a little Louie Louie. sitting across the table just just oh pinching the bridge of his nose this is ridiculous i mean seriously nobody knows the words to the to the song i mean really do it sounds like they're drawling like they're drunken sailors it yeah. really does but honestly we're wasted federal resources and these people are wasting their damn time on this one I mean, honestly, with all the problems that we have now in the world and we're dealing with this bullshit, seriously. Well, this was back in the 60s, but no, yeah. No, it was 2005, you oh, just said. Oh, this 2005 one. But that was not the FBI. That was just some teacher going, or some superintendent going, no, you can't do it. And honestly, you have nothing better to worry about than that? I agree, but... Anyways, sorry, go on. So, the Kingsmen are a 1960s beat garage Did rock I say band. sorry? 
Yeah, I don't know. You're drunk. Who cares? I turned Canadian. What the fuck? <laughs> so the Kingsmen are a 1960s beat garage band from Portland, Oregon, United States. They are best known for their 1963 recording of Richard Berry's Louie Louie, which held the number two spot on the Billboard charts for six weeks. The song has become an enduring classic. In 1962, while playing a gig at the Pipo Club in Seaside, Oregon, then managed by Al Dardis, the band noticed Rockin' Robin Roberts' version of Louie Louie being played on the jukebox for hours on end. The entire club would get up and dance. Eli convinced the Kingsmen to learn the song, which they played at dances to a great crowd response. Unknown to him, he changed the beat because he misheard it on the jukebox. Ken Chase, host of radio station KISN, they're on your side, formed his own club to capitalize on the on these dance crazes. I'm sorry. It just was... Are you getting a kickback from that or what? Dubbed the Chase, the Kingsmen became the club's house band and Ken Chase became the band's manager. On April 5th, 1963, Chase booked the band in an hour-long session at a local Northwestern Incorporated studio for the following day. The band had just played a 90-minute Louie Louie marathon. Could you imagine playing that same song over and over for 90 minutes? They did it with Stairway, but then again with Stairway, they only played it like three times. No, this was live. <laughs> oh, damn. So despite the band's annoyance at having so little time to prepare, on April 6th at 10 a.m., the Kingsmen walked into the three-microphone recording studio. In order to sound like a live performance, Eli was forced to lean back and sing to a microphone suspended from the ceiling. It was more yelling than singing, singing Eli said, because I was trying to be heard over all the instruments. In addition, he was wearing braces at the time of the performance, further compounding his infamously slurred words. Eli sang the beginning of the third verse several bars too early, but realized his mistake and waited for the rest of the band to catch up. In what was thought to be a warm-up, the song was recorded in its first and only take. The Kingsmen were not proud of the version, but their manager liked the rawness of their cover. The B-side was Haunted Castle, composed by Eli and Don Gallucci, the new keyboardist. However, Lynn Easton was credited on both the Jordan and Wand releases. The entire session cost $50, and the band split the cost. Louie Louie was kept on the top spot of the charts in late 1963 and early 1964 by the Singing Nun and Bobby Vinton, who <laughs> monopolized the number one slot four weeks or a piece. Did I hear that correctly, the Singing Nun? Yeah. That's awesome. The Kingsman single reached number one on the Cashbox chart and number two on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. There's that Cashbox chart again. I know, I know. Additionally, in the UK, it reached number 26 on the Record Retailer chart. It sold over 1 million copies and was awarded a gold disc. The band attracted nationwide attention when Louie Louie was banned by the governor of Indiana, Matthew E. Welsh, also attracting the attention of the FBI because of alleged indecent lyrics in their version of the song. The lyrics were, in fact, innocent. But Eli's baffling enunciation permitted teenage fans and concerned parents alike to imagine the most scandalous obscenities. All this attention made the song more popular. In, late, in April 1966, Louie Louie was reissued and once again hit the music charts, reaching number 65 on the Cashbox chart and number 97 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. The Kingsmen, technically still active today since formation in 1959, have 11 studio albums, the latest offering 1994 since we've been gone. The album was actually recorded in 1967 and released in 1994. The song itself, Louie Louie, I could never understand the lyrics, and I don't think I really wanted to. But now that I know them, I don't want to know them. I wish I didn't understand. I wish I didn't know. Yeah. This and 
I kind of <laughs> – they're always complaining about how they're obscene. You know, I'd like to see them actually do an obscene version. Be like, Louie, Louie, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> it's just like, if we're going to be go, obscene, we're going to be obscene. You can you can go listen to it on YouTube. People have done it with obscene lyrics. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I might have to look at that. I'm sure that Lou picked this mostly because of the name. I mean, it's a great song, and innocent, if, if all of you out there are wondering, I give it a solid seven. Now – with my name being Lewis, my official given name being Lewis, um, you can't even imagine how much I was teased about this as a kid. Maybe you can, but, you know, the whole, the whole Huey, Dewey, and Louie, you know, that kind of stuff, it was almost merciless. It really was. But when I stopped letting it get to me and learned to really let go and embrace what it was, it was a total 180. It really was. The song, a cover of the Richard Berry song, is one of my favorites, obviously because of the namesake, but also because it's a great drinking song. I mean, honestly, you go to any kind of party, look at any movie from maybe the 70s or 80s, they're going to throw this along when they're playing. Animal House, man. Every time I hear this song, I think Animal House. You know, and it's funny because that was just on HBO recently, and we just watched it start to finish, even though we own it. I do, too. And it's a great damn movie. They play the song. They got their money's worth because I watched it and counted. They played it four times from start to finish and it's only like what a three minute song something like that yeah but it was all done by otis wasn't it no that no, was no. that was something different but that was a different song <laughs> otis yeah. was pretty awesome actually now it was also in the movie down periscope okay with kelsey Grammer, the submarine movie when they were seeing like the drunken sailors right pretty awesome i also gave it a seven because again too not a great song but still one of my favorites and you're right is because of the namesake because when you have an uncommon name you don't really expect your name to be brought up a lot. You know, it's something that you hear something with your name in it. Like I saw my dad got me a Lewis Avenue sign, a street sign, which okay. I still have today. You know, if there's Lewis University in Chicago, which I showed you pictures of, and it's just like, yay, I have so much to teach people. <laughs> or Louie Louie. It's just, it's something that is such an uncommon name that you want it to be, it's, it's yours. You identify with it. So that's the reason that I like the song, and that's why I got it picked here. All right, so we have went extremely long on this one. I can't, uh, probably, but let's, about, probably about the same as we went on yours, I think. Uh, we got about ten minutes more on yours already than we do on mine. Well, I got more stories. <laughs> <laughs> so let's hit. Um, let's go ahead and hit. Um, uh, uh, let's do the trivia. That's it. So <laughs> here is your trivia question again. So name the band from a major recording label that has had the same original lineup of members for over 40 years. Now, I wrote it down. You can see it right here. I did not change it. And this is, I'm guessing it's the Texas Trio is easy top. You are correct. All right. Now, my question, and again, too, mine was a long-winded question because I am long-winded, as you couldn't tell by from when we talked about. Shut up. Stop nodding. I was just saying it. I can nod <laughs> if I want to. <laughs> You're across the table. I can't reach you anyways. So... What is my favorite movie of all time? Again, you may ask, how is this music related? Well, the movie's soundtrack features a exclusive or an exclusive Journey song, Only Solutions. And the score was orchestrated by Wendy, formerly Walter Carlos, and who also did the soundtrack of Shining and Clockwork Orange. Now, the hint was this movie sequel, which came out in 2010, was this soundtrack done by Daft Punk. I'm going to go with Tron. You are 100% correct. Woo! bonus and it was tron legacy that came out in 2010 so you are exactly right which means you get a bonus point for that yay yeah so well that... lou you are at 100 percent. you oh. are at one and one <laughs> it's because i just did one so you that means you put you are put at 19 and 16 nice 
because you got that one right. And again, if you wouldn't have gotten it right, it would still been whatever. But right. so I have to ask because I like to ask questions, and that's what part of it gave it away? Did you know it from the beginning or what nope, part of Daft it? Nope, Punk. Oh, really? The sequel part? <laughs> yeah. Have you seen either one of the movies? I've seen them both. I saw Tron 25 years ago, though. Well, yeah, it came out in, in, 2000, in 80, uh, 82, I think. But I remember watching it as a younger person and not enjoying it at all. Well, it's because computer stuff. Yeah, but I watched Legacy when I came when in the theaters, actually. Okay. And I really enjoyed that. I Tron is on my list to rewatch. I got it, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that said, let's let's wrap this this beast of an episode up. Yeah, it was absolutely. So, as always, if you like this episode or any of our other episodes, or you hate this episode or any of our other episodes, let us know. There's a lot of ways you can do that too. You can you can reach us with email at musicchallengepodcast at gmail.com or at eclecticmediaproject at gmail.com. You can also find us on the Facebooks at POI Network <laughs> or at Musically Challenged Podcast. And of course, our final way is going to be Twitter. You know, I'm not going to say we got the Twitter because we've had Twitter for months now. Yes. So if you want to get in touch with us, if you want to go ahead and send us a playlist, five songs, five. Ten, ten songs. Oh, that's right. Five per, per person. So, yeah, for us. But for them. So ten. Do you, wanna, so, do you want another beer? Dude, fuck off. You didn't even finish yours. You made me finish it, which is part of the reason I'm toasty as hell right now. 12% alcohol, bitch. You're drinking a Diet Pepsi, no shit. Anyways, moving on. So, no, 10 songs total because we're cutting down from 14. Just Starting trying to make episode it episode 70, yep. Right, trying to make it a little bit more... Slim line. There you go. <laughs> which neither one of us are slim. Or lined. Or shadies. Whatever. Ah, that's <laughs> what you did there. Exactly. So, 10 songs... You know, 10 different artists. If you want to go ahead and do a theme, that's great. If you don't, you just put 10 random bullshit songs. That's great. We'll be more than happy to talk about them. We'll tell you what we think. Pro or con, just again, too, don't be pissed if we get mad at your songs because they're terrible. But if we love them, we'll tell you. And again, love or hate, send us Twitter. And that's going to be at MCPodcast17 on Twitter. All right, sounds good. Well, thank you guys for listening. I hope, Lou, that this satisfies your... uh want of being the center of attention for a while as it did i'm sure yours a couple weeks ago absolutely and with that thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next week you have been listening to a program from the point of insanity network visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows follow us on facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.